okay punters, we're facing a long haul over the next tranche of episodes. Not only do we have five concurrent expeditions in the slot around the 1912 mark, some of them comprised big efforts spanning several years. I'll get the brew on and make a start. I've been hearing tales and reading books about Scott's second expedition to Antarctica for as long as I can remember and for as long as I could check out and read books from the local library respectively. Several years ago, I noticed an interesting phenomenon. Every time I read a new account of the final sledging journey, or reread the original journal accounts, I find myself hoping for a different outcome than that which I know lies in the offing. Spoilers. Scott and the four who followed him to the pole died on the return journey. For some reason, my brain rails against this fact and holds faint but hopeless hopes that somehow, in some way, they make it back this time. It's stupid, but I don't seem to be able to turn the hope off, and I'm experiencing it even in preparing my notes for and recording the episode covering the British Antarctic Expedition. Ah well. We'll make a start and see how they fare this time. In addition to biting his tongue over Shackleton's perceived betrayal and finding himself in a naval career rut, Scott spent some of the time between his Antarctic expeditions wooing and eventually marrying Kathleen Bruce, an artist whose path crossed with Scott's through mutual friend J.M. Barry, creator of Peter Pan. Kathleen Bruce's childhood featured little in the way of affection, and she thrived on the attention and accolades garnered by her artistic talents and the charismatic company she kept. The delight with which she recounted an episode in which an artist for whom she was modelling threw himself under an omnibus on hearing of her engagement to Scott captures the essence of the clockwork I see operating in her. Being adored may have been more important to her than the people doing the adoring. Scott certainly adored her, and came close to calling off the engagement over his concerns that he couldn't afford to provide a comfortable home for them, while still servicing the familial bills that kept his mother and sisters in their accustomed comfort. Kathleen put him straight, and they were wed on the 2nd of September 1908, with Discovery veterans Royds, Barn, Bernacki and Wilson in attendance, Reginald Skelton being indisposed on the day. The Scots' only child, Peter Markham Scott, was born a year later, the day after Captain Scott announced his intention to return to Antarctica on the 13th of September 1909. In 1909, Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, released the People's Budget, designed to ease poverty through sweeping reforms geared to redistribute wealth. Blocked at every opportunity by the people slated to lose the most by the measures proposed by the budget, the economy into which Scott announced his expedition plans was one in which people with money were loath to donate large sums to anyone for anything. The British government put up £20,000 in March of 1910, but far more was needed to get things moving for Scott. The Navy weren't playing, and with no single big-ticket patron equivalent to Shackleton's William Beardmore, Scott had to put out the call for public subscriptions and go electoring. Not his strongest suit, and something he enjoyed far less than many of his fellow explorers. 
The public interest necessary to garner subscriptions required Scott Promote reaching the Pole first as the primary objective of the expedition. Several supporters cited the large sums publishers were pushing at Cook and Peary for their accounts of their North Pole exploits, reinforcing that the Poles stand as a key goal for the expedition. After two successive furthest souths from his own and Shackleton's efforts, the public might not be interested in a third extension that didn't go the whole way to 90 degrees south. Going further than Shackleton might hold historical interest, but the pole was where the big money lay. Shackleton's knighthood made it clear the promotions and birthday honours lay in the novelty outcomes, but the high benchmark set by the scientific publications of Drygalski and Charcot's expeditions and the humiliation Scott felt over the Royal Society's poo-pooing of the scientific output of the Discovery Expedition required Scott also push the scientific merit of his new project. Scott planned a program requiring an unprecedented number of scientific staff to try to allay criticism arising from the Royal Geographic Society that following Shackleton's footsteps for the sake of covering the remaining 97 nautical miles to the Pole lacked exploratory merit. Several other Antarctic expedition ambitions came to light at that time. US Naval Engineer and North Pole claimant Robert Peary, German Naval Officer Wilhelm Fulchner, Japanese Army Officer Nobu Shirase, and Scottish Antarctic legend William Spears Bruce were also making plans. As discussed in episode 27, Bruce never headed south again after his voyage aboard the Scotia. The government snub given Bruce and his crew on their return, capped by the withholding of polar medals for the Scots, a slight Bruce blamed squarely on the influence of the grudge-holding Clements Markham, was reinforced when Bruce couldn't secure government funding or support from any of the scientific bodies. Since writing and recording the episode about the Scottish National Antarctic Expedition, I was made aware of, and enjoyed immensely, a documentary about William Spears Bruce, made by the BBC and historian Neil Oliver. In an excellent episode of an excellent series, The Last Explorers, Dr Oliver recounted that Bruce experienced a mental collapse in 1920. Bruce's admission to the hospital, I recounted, was due to his mental illness, and his death at the age of 54, in part, I think, due to his treatment by bastards such as Clements Markham. We need to examine events in the life of Roald Amundsen at this point, as he plays a significant role in shaping outcomes in the British expedition. Roald Amundsen, experienced in polar sailing and survival after his time aboard the Belgica, harboured ambitions to lead his own expeditions. On returning to Norway, he completed his skipper's licence and spent his inheritance buying a 47-tonne sloop, the Gjør, in 1901. He began a series of oceanographic voyages around Greenland, learning the craft from Fritjof Nansen. He sought instruction in magnetic measurements at the British Observatory, but was turned down. Amundsen used a contact at the Christiana Observatory to gain an introduction to Georg von Neumeyer, foremost magnetician of his day, working at the Deutsche Seewert in Hamburg. On learning of Amundsen's plan to sail the Northwest Passage and relocate the North Magnetic Pole for the first time since Ross's efforts, the Professor took the explorer under his wing for three months of intensive training in the theory and practice of the magnetician's work.
gradually accruing the knowledge and equipment to make the best scientific use of the audacious plan he developed to make the first transit of the Northwest Passage, but with his own funds insufficient to fit out and victual the Gyoa for the long voyage. Amundsen needed to seek assistance. This didn't sit well with him. He much preferred to do something and then speak about it after the event. While comfortable taking physical risks, promoting something he hadn't yet done required social risk he found distasteful, and funding wasn't forthcoming. Amundsen ran up considerable debts in preparing for the transit, and with one of his creditors threatening to embargo the Gyoa, a security against payment, Amundsen and his crew of six cast off in the dead of night under the cover of heavy rain on the 16th of June, 1903. Some accounts feature a chase to the wharf, others an agreement that Nansen would square the debts in Amundsen's absence. Either way, Amundsen's secretive nature didn't serve his interests well, and the kick-off of the Gyoa voyage paints him as a shady punter. The transit succeeded. Amundsen and co. did make it from the Atlantic to the Pacific, across the top of Canada, the small and shallow-drafted Gyoa passing over shallow water and through narrow leads, inaccessible to the larger vessels of past expeditions. Traversing the waters between the Canadian mainland and the archipelago of islands to the north, the Gyoa weathered some bad storms and survived a fire in the engine room and a grounding on a submerged rock. The team spent two years at Gyoa Haven, establishing observation huts and making dog-powered sledge journeys of exploration across the sea ice to the surrounding islands, establishing food and equipment caches. They also located the site of the North Magnetic Pole at the time, it having moved on from where James Clark Ross located it 70 years prior. Inuit arrived at Goa Haven in November 1903. The Norwegians learnt snowcraft from the locals and traded with them, receiving fur clothing in exchange for knives, needles, and the empty tin cans they would otherwise have discarded by the time-honoured maritime tradition of chucking them in the sea. Living beyond the regions where cottage industry mining, let alone smelting, are a possibility, metal usually only made it into Inuit inventories when a meteorite brought a small supply from the sky so the Norwegians' discards constituted a figurative gold mine, lying just one alchemical transformation away from constituting a literal one. Amundsen learnt a great deal about polar survival from the Inuit that no one on the Belgica could have taught him, though he never became sufficiently adept at building igloos that he could afford to discard tents on his subsequent sledging journeys. In August 1905, the Gjoa left Gjoa Haven, and sailed west for four days, sometimes clearing the bottom with only a foot of water below the keel, and reached Cape Colburn, previously the easternmost point any ship reached from the Pacific, and marking their success in completing the first crossing using the Northwest Passage. Ice conditions prevented the Gyoa sailing onto the Bering Strait as planned, and the Norwegians were frozen in for another winter at Herschel Island, though with another twelve ships also stuck in the area, they were less isolated than in the previous two winters. Amundsen skied hundreds of miles to Eagle City, Alaska, to send telegrams announcing the achievements of his crew. The Gyoa resumed its voyage in mid-August 1906, 
reaching Nome, Alaska on the 31st. Amundsen returned to Norway a national hero. The Gjoa, after a long period as a monument in San Francisco, returned to Norway in 1972 and is now displayed at the Fram Museum in Oslo. Cook and Peary's claims on the North Pole nixed Amundsen's ambitions to head north. Without primacy, he couldn't see the mileage in heading to the North Pole, but his secretive nature meant he didn't let on that he'd lost interest in further Arctic work. He negotiated the use of the Fram with Fritjof Nansen, who was himself thinking of heading south to make an attempt on the South Pole. Nansen released the ship on the understanding that Amundsen would be heading north once more, and that's what everyone thought Amundsen was working on as Scott, Filchner and Shirase firmed their plans for national expeditions. Amundsen kept his southern plans secret from everyone, even his crew. Eyes on Scott again. Sir Clements Markham highlighted the service Scott's earlier efforts did, restoring credibility to the Royal Geographic Society in the wake of the uproar caused by the admission of women members. Markham felt the Royal Geographic owed Scott their support, and while no longer president, he still held some sway with the new committee cohort. As always, the RGS placed a premium on exploration, but they were willing to give Scott leeway to retrace his and Shackleton's steps if it meant the expedition reached the Pole. But he added plans to send teams to Edward VII Land and Victoria Land to survey and geologise, sealing the deal in the eyes of RGS members. The Royal Geographic Society, under the leadership of Leonard Darwin, son of Charles Darwin, endorsed the expedition. Robert Peary, visiting London to receive a Royal Geographic Society gong in April 1909, advised Scott to use dogs in his hauling efforts. But with Markham's distaste for dog hauling well established as his own position before his previous expedition, and his experiences with dogs coloured by his inexperience and the associated near tragedy on his polar attempt, Scott was keen to examine other options. The seed of enthusiasm for ponies sown in Scott and Shackleton by Albert Armitage germinated in Scott on learning of Shackleton's furthest south effort. While Shackleton didn't talk up the efficiency of ponies, Scott perceived in them the major difference in the fortunes of the two most recent British attempts on the South Pole, and determined to make ponies a key element in his new project. Scott also turned to Reginald Skelton as expedition engineer, and asked that he design a mechanical sledge hauling device. Skelton set to work in his spare time, designing at first a paddle wheel arrangement set between sledge runners. This wasn't much chop in testing, and the second design, using paired caterpillar tracks, is recognisable as an embryonic form of the vehicle still in use in polar regions today. Skelton wasn't the first person to come to the idea of caterpillar tracks, but his correspondence with Scott suggests he was working independently of concurrent designers. Unable to incorporate a steering mechanism at the clutch and gears end of the contraption, Skelton's system required a leader walking out in front of the tractor and altering its course with ropes attached to a yoke at the front of the vehicle. When I first saw pictures of this arrangement, I thought the guy out front was trying to tow the tractor. The phrase wasn't part of my childhood, but now I think, mechanical sledge hauling, you're doing it wrong, whenever I see those images. 
even though I now know what's actually going on. Testing with the Caterpillar tracks went better than with the paddle wheel vehicle, but better is a relative term, and with much money and time invested in the design and manufacture of skeleton snow tractors, an attitude of, it'll be alright on the night, seems to have prevailed. Present at the testing in the Swiss Alps, Nansen was unimpressed, and urged Scott to put his trust in dog teams, but to no avail. Scott asked Dr Edward Wilson to lead the scientific team, and Wilson, still at work researching a disease affecting Scottish grouse, accepted, finalising his research and still working on his reports as the expedition sailed south. Wilson perceived the expedition as primarily scientific, with the pole as a bonus to take advantage of if the opportunity arose, the opposite to Scott's perception. Douglas Mawson, whose experiences under Shackleton and whose trek to the South Magnetic Pole made him one of the prime candidates for the science program, approached Scott and discussed the expedition plans at length. Mawson wanted to lead a small team concentrating on the coast to the west of Cape Adair. Scott offered him the lead geologist role and a place in the pole team, but couldn't promise to dedicate any effort to the region of greatest interest to Mawson proposing instead a boat-based reconnaissance to the west of Cape Adair after the shore parties were collected. With no interest in the pole itself, disliking Dr Wilson, and eager to examine the links between Antarctica and Australia hinted at by Bernacki's work at Cape Adair, Mawson knocked back the invitation. To Scott's displeasure, Mawson set about seeking funds for his own expedition. In early 1910, Shackleton announced he would lead a pure science expedition south in 1911, and invited Mawson to join him as the chief scientist. Hanlon's razor encourages us not to ascribe to malice that which can be explained by ignorance or incompetence, and it might be that Shackleton didn't realise this would appear to be a dig at Scott, but that's how it appeared. After much discussion and some efforts at fundraising, Shackleton's talk came to nothing, and Mawson was left to organise his own expedition or sit on his hands. He chose the expedition option, and we'll get back to him in an episode dedicated to the results of that decision further along in the series. Professor Edgeworth David, in correspondence with Dr Edward Wilson, recommended two of his former geology students and a Cape Royds colleague as the expertise needed to make the most of the opportunities the expedition would present. Raymond Priestley, whom David knew well from their time together at Cape Royds under Shackleton, Australian Frank Debenham, and the prickly, headstrong Griffith Taylor, who in spite of a dearth of leadership experience, eventually impressed Dr Wilson sufficient to fill the chief geologist's position that Mawson knocked back. Griffith Taylor took physical training in preparation for the expedition with fellow Cambridge postgrad, Canadian Charles Wright. An expert on the physics of ice, Taylor put Wright forward as an expedition candidate, and he signed on as the team physicist. Scott wanted the tried and true discovery for his second expedition, but couldn't repurchase the ship from the current owners, who were using the ice-worthy vessel in resupplying outposts of the Hudson Bay Trading Company, operating in the high latitudes of the Canadian Arctic, north of the Atlantic. The Morning and the Nimrod came into consideration, but it was the 700-tonne Dundee whaler, Terra Nova, 
the ship that once caused Scott such consternation on its arrival in McMurdo Sound, which became the expedition vessel. The plan Scott was shaping up involved shore parties working from at least three points on the Antarctic coast. To facilitate this, and to save money by negating the need for a relief vessel, the Terra Nova would spend the winter well clear of the circle, returning to resupply and relocate parties in the summer months. Scott wanted his main body operating from Cape Crozier, which offered scope to carry out significant biological research of interest to Dr Wilson, and which would serve well as a stepping off point for another attempt to reach the South Pole. The Terra Nova would then carry a second party east, establishing the first shore base in King Edward VII land, hopefully quieting the qualms of those concerned the expedition would not cover new ground. Michael Barn and George Mulock were slated as expedition officers under Scott as far back as Shackleton's first announcement of his first expedition, but neither would end up sailing with Scott a second time, though I don't know why. Scott captured the imagination of Teddy Evans, who'd sailed on the morning as an officer during the relief of the discovery. Evans was scouting out funding for his own Antarctic voyage, but threw his hand in with Scott, trading his funding contacts for the second-in-command slot. This caused a disjunct, though. With engineer Reginald Skelton holding the higher naval rank of commander, well above Evans' rank of lieutenant, and with Evans refusing to serve in a role where a superior officer would act underneath him, Scott found himself in one of the many cleft sticks the expedition presented him. He needed Skelton's engineering skill and experience in the South to solve the problems of mechanised sledge hauling, but he also needed Evans' funding opportunities. Scott couldn't hold a candle to Shackleton's and Borkrevink's talent for cajoling funds out of rich benefactors, finding himself unable to make grandiose, unfounded claims about potential mineral wealth the expedition might reveal. Evans found gilding this lily easier than his superior, and Scott allowed the junior officer to get on with the task. Skelton offered to sail as a civilian, but Evans refused to countenance even this solution to his non-problem, and Scott asked his friend to stay home. Skelton did so with better grace than I might muster in equivalent circumstances. Lieutenant Victor Campbell of the Royal Navy would sail as leader of one of the shore parties. Doctors Edward Atkinson and Murray Levick joined as Navy surgeons, and Lieutenant Henry Bowers of the Royal Indian Marines signed on as a generally useful person. Scott placed an order for ponies and dogs, the former for the pole attempt, the latter for work local to winter quarters, through a shady character operating in the east and surrounded by rumours of links with British intelligence, Army officer Cecil Mears. Mears' talent for Asian languages and history of working in Siberia saw him ideally placed to procure the ice-hardy animals the expedition needed. Scott sent him east in January of 1910 and set about arranging the necessary purchases and logistics to get the animals to Vladivostok and from there to New Zealand. Scott also recognised the need to train his men for more effective use of skis than anyone achieved in his previous expedition. Trig Gran, a Norwegian naval officer, joined the British Antarctic Expedition as their ski instructor on the recommendation of Fritjof Nansen. Edward Nelson, 
an invertebrate biologist and a member of the Marine Biological Association of the United Kingdom, and England's first lecturer in meteorology, George Simpson, rounded out the scientific contingent. Bernard Day, motor mechanic under Shackleton at Cape Royds, signed on for the same role in the care of Skelton's motor sledges. Recognising the value of photographs and newsreel footage in capturing public support and funds, Scott sought a professional photographer to document the expedition. Cecil Mears recommended one he met in the wake of the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. Herbert Ponting, who covered the war from the Japanese side, hired Mears for his language skills, and the two spent six months travelling together through China to India. Ponting styled himself a camera artist, seeking to distance himself from the flood of photographers generated by the Kodak Revolution, celluloid photographic film having made photography accessible to a wide market of amateurs. Ponting would, in addition to documenting the expedition, train others to take photographs. Cameras would go everywhere the shore parties went, and Ponting needed to impart enough photographic knowledge that people could document their efforts in his absence. Scott planned to send Ponting home after the first winter to give illuminated lectures and to screen films of the expedition's exploits to date, keeping the British Antarctic expedition in the public eye and bringing in the donations. Scott may not have been as canny as Shackleton in terms of marketing, but to me, the employment of Ponting marks the start of a new era in Antarctic endeavour, the PR era, with full-time staff dedicated to public relations. A thousand-pound donation to the coffers came in from Captain Lawrence Edward Grace Oates of the 6th Inniskilling Dragoons. Oates, a veteran of the Second Boer War, where he received a wound to his thigh and a recommendation for the Victoria Cross, traded his funds for a place in the expedition, wherein Scott anticipated his cavalry background would make him the ideal candidate for Chief Horse Wrangler. Titus, a nickname referring to Titus Oates, also known as Titus the Liar, a 17th century charlatan whose history of falsehoods and perjuries culminated in a fabricated papal plot geared to kill King Charles II while laying the blame on the Catholics, was the laconic opposite of the effusive Apsley Cherry Garrard, a 24-year-old Oxford Classics graduate who met Scott while he discussed his plans with Wilson in company with Cherry's cousin and applied to join the expedition. His application was rejected as the expedition had no need of a Classics scholar. Cherry Garrard's substantial inheritance allowed him to offer a £1,000 donation to the expedition with his second application. Again, he was rejected, but in love with the project, he decided to make the donation regardless, and it was this gesture that caught Scott's attention, finally gaining the young man his birth. Tom Crean, William Lashley and Edgar Evans reprised their mess deck roles, performed with distinction on the Discovery Expedition. Ten additional seamen would comprise the remainder of the shore parties, while 32 officers and men made up the contingent dedicated to the Terra Nova. Alfred Cheatham of Shackleton's Nimrod team among them. Amundsen ensured he wasn't home when Scott came calling, seeking his advice and cooperation in 1910. In an ethical swerve well familiar to anyone who's been kept in the dark regarding information that they deserve to know, 
Amundsen thought it more honourable to run away and hide than to outright lie to Scott's face regarding his ambitions in the South. That the social mores necessitating this hedging around the truth now appear so much trifling bullshit is neither here nor there. Lying by omission is lying. Lying by omission when someone deserves to know what you know is wrong. Lying by omission facilitated by running away to hide when someone deserves to know what you know is wrong and cowardly. If Amundsen thought that his business was his business alone, his hiding from Scott belies his resolve. Eager to coordinate northern and southern measurements, Scott purchased duplicate scientific instruments, one set being delivered to Amundsen to ensure the science of the new expedition would shine as a beacon of meticulous measurements and international collaboration. Amundsen may have felt a pang of shame over this, but it didn't put any crimp in his plan to head south, still kept secret from everyone signed on for his looming departure aboard Nansen's Fram. Tight financial straits characterised preparations for the British Antarctic expedition up to the final days before Scott's departure. Scott, while far from being the first explorer to seek commercial sponsorship to support his expedition, was the first to take on large-scale funding and vittles on the promise the sponsor or supplier's product would feature prominently in the resulting images and film footage. You can spot the various corporate sponsors displayed prominently in Herbert Ponting's images. Examples of Edwardian product placement. The Discovery sailed for Cape Town under Lieutenant Evans, Scott staying on in London paying outstanding bills with the final flourish of donations and finalising syndication deals with new services and magazines. On the 16th of July 1910, Robert Falcon and Kathleen Scott joined by Oriana Wilson and Hilda Evans, boarded the steamer Saxon to take them to rendezvous with the expedition in South Africa. Evans ran a loose ship in Scott's absence, and everyone was on good terms and full of bonhomie when the owner, as Scott came to be known among his crew, joined them. Some discord arose from Kathleen's interventions, several crew noting her as meddlesome, among them the otherwise imperturbable Bertie Bowers. Kathleen's influence saw her brother, Lieutenant William Bruce, sail aboard the Terra Nova in spite of Scott's repeated refusals to sign him on. She didn't like the other officers' wives, and the friction caused by this rubbed off on the crew, who were glad to leave them in the care of Edward Wilson aboard a steamer during the transit to Australia. The Terra Nova dipped low into the Southern Ocean to catch fair winds to Melbourne, reaching Port Phillip on the 12th of October where the officers' wives rejoined them, though the tension arising from the return of Kathleen Scott to their midst was overwhelmed by a telegram sent to Scott from Madeira. Beg leave inform you, proceeding Antarctic, Amundsen. Cecil Mears and the twenty ponies and thirty-four dogs he purchased in Russia joined the ship in Littleton, New Zealand. In securing the dogs, Mears met dog driver Dmitry Gerov, and jockey, Anton Olmelchenko, and signed them on to help with the dogs and ponies respectively. With experience of dog driving, but no knowledge of horses, his charges constituted excellence on the dog front and questionable quality among the ponies. On sending him east, the only stipulation Scott gave Mears was that he wanted grey Siberian ponies, Shackleton having noted 
that the darker-coloured animals died first during the first equine adventures in Antarctica. Mears' purchases appeared in the eyes of cavalrymen Oates. The greatest lot of crocs I have ever seen. I've never been able to work out if this was Oates' opinion of the breed or of the specimens Mears turned up within that breed, but either way, Oates was not impressed. But in Scott's eyes, Amundsen's presence in the South was the biggest problem he faced. Scott recognised Amundsen's competence in polar work, the superiority of Norwegians on skis, and that Amundsen would be working dog teams exclusively. What Scott previously perceived as a blank slate had become a racetrack. Going to tip my hat this episode to Kate of Storytelling Australia, Victoria, whose company and mentorship mean a lot to me. I normally don't ask you for reviews. I'm quite proud of the series, but I think that anyone that's interested in Antarctic history is likely to find the series when they go looking for it, so I don't get too fussed about the algorithms that iTunes and Stitcher uses to work out where to place a podcast in their rankings. But I am interested in seeing what happens if a bunch of five-star reviews come in all at once. So if you're listening to this episode any time in October 2016, and you think it's worth a five-star review, please get amongst it on your podcast service of choice and give Ice Coffee five stars. I'm really interested in seeing what happens if it all comes in at once, just in that one short window. And with that said, I will never bother you for reviews again. Take care and appreciate your coffee.